passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. This morning is our uh, third to last Sunday in the book of Genesis. Uh, We're going to actually still spread that out for another month or so. Um, We're going to be in Genesis 48 today, Genesis 49 next week. And then, uh, like I mentioned, we're going to give you a DVD for Christmas uh, to to watch with your families. And then on January 1st, uh, on New Year's Day, we're going to spend some time just looking at what it means to commit ourselves to, to the Bible and to be a people of the book. Uh, to, to read uh, God's Word and, and to really challenge us moving into the new year. And then on January 8th, we will finish up with Genesis chapter 50, uh, a whopping year and a half after we began this book. After that, we'll jump into 1 Timothy, and we'll spend some time looking at First and Second Timothy, uh, looking specifically at church health. What does it mean to be a healthy church? We talked about that a lot last week, that we want to be a healthy church planning healthy churches. First Timothy talks a lot about that exact same topic. And so we'll spend some time looking at that uh, in, the, in the coming months as we move ahead. This morning, we're going to be in Genesis 48. And Genesis 48 is a very uh, interesting passage. It's a unique passage that talks about a topic that we oftentimes don't like to talk about. It talks about death. Oftentimes when we talk about death or when we are being brought near to death as, as humans, it oftentimes give, gives people a clarity and it gives people perspective. There's a, a poem written by uh, uh, a man from the uh, 1600s, I believe, uh, that really, as he is coming close to death, it describes his experience, the clarity that he was given as he came close to death. I just want to read this poem for you this morning. The seas are quiet when the winds give o'er. So calm are we when passions are no more. For then we know how vain it was to boast of fleeting things too certain to be lost. Clouds of affection from our younger eyes conceal the emptiness that age descries. The soul's dark cottage, battered and decayed, lets in new light through chinks that time has made. Stronger by weakness, wiser men become as they draw near to their eternal home. Leaving the old, both worlds at once they view that stand upon the threshold of the new. I love that, that first line of the second stanza there. The soul's dark cottage, battered and decayed, lets in new light through chinks that time has made. We see this in old barns all the time. As the roof starts to bow and decay, as the siding starts to fall down, shafts of light pierce into the darkness like searchlights. And oftentimes as death draws near, those same beams of light, shafts of light, peer into our own souls. Give us perspective on things that we may not have looked at previously. Give us clarity and reflection on things that are of of importance in our lives that we might have neglected in our past. And this is true of Jacob in Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48, Jacob is nearing the end of his life, this roller coaster of a life filled with ups and downs of following God. And it comes to his deathbed in Genesis 48. Genesis 48 and 49 tell us of Jacob's last words to his sons. 
As death is drawing near to him, he looks at all of the mistakes he's made, all of the successes that he's had in his life. He looks at every single moment in his life in the past. And then he looks to the future. He looks at every remaining moment as a gift from God, and he wants to take advantage of this time left to encourage his sons to learn from his mistakes, to learn from his successes, and to follow God more faithfully. Now, don't miss the importance of this chapter. Thousands of years later, when the book of Hebrews is being written, Hebrews sees this moment as the most important, as the most defining moment of Jacob's life. It is here when he is on his deathbed blessing his two grandsons, not when he encounters God at Bethel, not when he wrestles with God at Penuel. It is here that the author of Hebrews says that we see the clearest picture of Jacob's faith, this clearest picture of Jacob's love for God, his expectation that God will come through for him. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. Excuse me, I I don't have it written down. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus. Excuse me, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Right here, at the end of his life, we see the greatest picture of Jacob's faith. The fleetingness of time, the urgency of death facing him, sparks of faith in him that we have not seen in his life up to this point. 150 years, and we haven't seen faith like this in Jacob. And here at the end of his life, Jacob gives his sons, and by extension he gives us, Two truths that are extremely important for us to hold on to. In fact, I I would say that this is not an exaggeration. They are the two most important truths for you to ever hear and for you to ever believe. They are that life-changing, that transformative in our lives. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 48. We're going to spend some time uh, reading the entire passage First, and then we're going to jump in and look at these two truths for us this morning. So Genesis chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to the offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan Aram, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, where there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so they could not see. 
So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was, on the, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all the days, uh, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all the evil, bless the boys. And in, in them let my name be carried on, And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since the one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people. And he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you Rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Joseph hears that his father is ill, goes and visits his father. He travels from the capital of Egypt to Goshen, where his family is staying in order to say goodbye to them. He brings his two sons. They're most likely in their early 20s. Brings his two sons with him to say goodbye. And when Jacob sees Joseph, he declares that he is going to adopt his two sons. He's going to adopt his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, from Joseph. And he's going to make them the exact same thing as the rest of his children. 1 Chronicles 5 tells us that Jacob actually is doing this as a way to uh, give them, give Joseph the birthright uh, rather than his firstborn, Reuben. Because Reuben, in the past, had uh, attempted a coup to take over Jacob's family. And so as a part of this adoption process, he brings the two sons, grandsons forward. He blesses them. But instead of blessing the older with his right hand, and in ancient cultures, the right hand was more important. And so it was a form of greater blessing. Instead of blessing the older with his right hand and the younger with the left hand, he crosses his hands. He blesses the younger with his right hand as a sign of superiority. And Joseph gets confused about that. After all, this is not the way that things are supposed to work. And so he confronts his father, but, but Jacob says, this is not a mistake. I did this on purpose. The younger will be greater. And we see this in Israel's history. This is true. Hundreds of years later, it is an Ephraimite named Joseph, or excuse me, named Joshua that leads the people of Israel into the promised land. Later on in Israel's history, in the time of the prophets, the name Ephraim actually became synonymous to the name of 
the northern kingdom of Israel. Manasseh was great, but Ephraim became greater, second only to Judah in Israel's history. And this ceremony wraps up, and Jacob again declares his faith. He says, I'm about to die, but God is going to be with me. He's going to take care of our family. And then he ends with this really unique phrase, this unique statement. He says, I'm going to give you, my son, a piece of land in the middle of Canaan. And that's how the story ends. That's how the chapter ends. And we might be saying, well, what goes on? What's going on here? What does this mean for us today? What are these two truths that I'm saying are the most important truths we could ever know, ever hear, ever believe in our lives? Let's jump into those. The first one is a truth that that Jacob gets from looking back on the past, looking at his life. He looks at all of it. After some time of reflection, he says, you know what, son, there is one thing that I want you to know, and it is this. History shows how God has worked for me. History shows how God has worked for me. And that's the same thing for us as well. If we take the time to look, if we take the time to listen and to reflect, not only on our past, but on all of human history, we can know confidently. History shows us that God has been at work on our behalf. Jacob looks at his life and looks his son in his, eye, in his eyes and says, God has been for me. God has been for our family. God has worked on our behalf. And then he lists four different ways, four specific examples of God working in history on behalf of his family. And by extension, how God has worked in history for our behalf as well. Let's jump into these examples. First is this. We have heard God speak. We have heard God speak. Genesis chapter 48, verse 3, the first things that Jacob says to his son Joseph when he sees him is this. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me. Let's just pause right there before we continue. Notice what what is going on here. The first thing that Jacob does is he's remembering his past. He's remembering what God has done for him. He says that God has spoken to me. God has revealed himself to me. That God has entered into history. More specifically, God has entered into Jacob's history and has spoken to him. When we talk about history And how history shows us God at work on our behalf. This is really the first stop. God has spoken. God was under no obligation to speak to his creation. No obligation to speak to his creation. He would have been completely, utterly justified in letting his creation alone point to him. And yet God speaks to his creation. Romans chapter 1 declares this, For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. If we want to know how history shows us that God has worked on our behalf, the first place that we need to look, the only place we need to look, is the Bible. God, as a gift of grace, grace, limits himself to the constraints of human language to communicate 
with us, to share his grace with us, to reveal himself to us. That's true for us in the Bible. That's true for Jacob. Before the Bible was written, God reveals himself to Jacob, appears to Jacob and says, this is who I am. This is what I am like. And this is what I will do for you. I am faithful and I commit myself to you and to your family. The gift for us today is infinitely greater. God speaking to us today is infinitely greater. What Jacob saw dimly, we now see in full because of the cross. Hebrews chapter 1 opens this way. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. If you're a Christian, God is for you. He is working on your behalf. He has spoken to you through his word. He has spoken to you through the Old Testament. He has spoken to you through the New Testament. He continues to speak through that word, through his Holy Spirit. We have heard God speak. And because we've seen and heard God speak, we know that history shows us how God is at work for us. That's the first example. The second one is this. We have seen God's promises fulfilled. We have seen God's promises fulfilled. So first Jacob says, you know what? In my past, I heard God speak to me. God revealed himself to me. But then he gets into the specifics of what God has said to him. Pick up in verse 4. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. God speaks to Jacob at Bethel. He speaks to to him right here, and what, what does he promise him? And he promises him three things. This is the same promise that he makes to Abraham. First, he promises a special relationship, a covenant between his family, his offspring, and God. Second thing he promises is land. He says, this land, the land of Canaan, will one day be yours. And the third thing he promises is offspring. He says, you're going to become great. You're going to have a a number of children, and they're going to one day become a great nation. I just want to focus on one of those. One that we see very clear in Genesis throughout the book. The emphasis is on descendants. The emphasis is on offspring. Jacob has seen this promise of God that he will become a great nation. He begins to see it come true. The text emphasizes this over and over and over. Jacob fled Canaan in fear of his life when he was a young man. God appears to him at Bethel and says exactly this. He says, I will bless you. I will, I will make you fruitful. I will make you multiply and you will have a great number of offspring. He does this when he's headed the wrong way, when he has no one to call to his name, when he has no family, when he's running for his life. Later, he fathers 12 sons. Decades pass, and then when he enters into Egypt, there are 70 descendants who go with him. And then Genesis chapter 47 makes it very clear that the people of Israel continue to grow and grow and multiply and multiply and multiply while they are in Egypt. He has seen God fulfill his promises. He has seen God at work 
in his life. After verse 4, the next verse, he adopts two more sons. He continues to grow and to multiply. He adopts Manasseh. He adopts Ephraim. God keeps his promise to him. It's not fully fulfilled. It continues to grow, as we well know, in the book of Exodus. But God has kept his promises to him. In fact, he has kept his promises to him, even though they're not fully fulfilled enough for him to recognize God's faithfulness. How about us? How about us today? Have we seen God's promises fulfilled? Have we seen God's promises fulfilled? Absolutely. In 2 Corinthians, we see that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. I encourage you to read that passage sometime as it talks about all of the promises of God are considered to be yes in Christ Jesus. The promise of God to to reconcile us to him is fulfilled in Christ. The gift of salvation, the promise of salvation is fulfilled in Christ. The promise of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled in In Christ, sending the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is considered to be a sign, a guarantee of our own inheritance. Now you might be saying, well, we haven't seen all of the promises of God fulfilled. We have still have sickness. We still have death today. God's kingdom fully isn't uh, formed and it isn't fully present here. We still see evil today. God's promises aren't fully fulfilled yet. But we can have confidence moving forward because we have seen enough throughout history to show us that God continues to work for us. In fact, that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter one, when describing the Holy Spirit, describes the Holy Spirit in this way. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice this phrase, describing the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have seen God's promises fulfilled. We haven't seen every single promise of God fulfilled, but we have seen enough of God's promises fulfilled to have confidence that they will one day be fulfilled. History tells us that God continues to work on our behalf. Just as he worked on Jacob's behalf, so also he works on our behalf today. Third example, we have experienced God's faithfulness. We have experienced God's faithfulness. While he is blessing his grandsons, Jacob, first thing he does, before he even gets to the blessing, he declares that God has been faithful to his family. Pick up in verse 15. Verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Just stop right there. Before he even pronounces the blessing, he describes who God is first and foremost, and then he describes that he is the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. These men followed God imperfectly, as we have seen time and time again, as we've been working through the, way, or through the book of Genesis. Abraham followed God imperfectly. Isaac followed God imperfectly. Some of the things that they did would leave you scratching your head, wondering how on earth this person could be so thick at times. They followed God imperfectly, and yet in spite of their imperfections, God remains faithful 
to them. God has been faithful to his father. God has been faithful to his grandfather, but he's also been faithful to him. He uses the language, this powerful image of a shepherd to describe God's relationship to him, his love for him, his care for him and for his family. The same is true for us. The same is true for us. We have experienced God's faithfulness each and every day. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations three twenty-two through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The incredibly good news about God's faithfulness is that it is not dependent upon our faithfulness to him. It doesn't matter how much we turn our backs on God, like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob. Because if we've seen one, three, one thing throughout Genesis, it's just that God continues to be faithful, even when we are unfaithful to him. If you're a Christian, have you ever had a day after becoming a Christian where you sinned? you ever had a day when you've succumbed to temptation even though you know you shouldn't have? Ever had a day where you wanted or valued or craved something more than God? Where you did the opposite of what God wanted even though you knew you shouldn't? If we're being honest, we'll say yes all the time. God's faithfulness rules over our own unfaithfulness because that is who God is, and that is what his faithfulness is like. God is faithful to us. It is not dependent upon our faithfulness to him. He is our shepherd, and his care for us will not change with or without our obedience. How does history tell us that God is for us? Because we have experienced it. We have experienced his faithfulness each and every day of our lives. God is faithful. Fourth example that we see from this passage is this. We have been given redemption. We have been given redemption. Let's look at verse 15 again. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers walked, Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all the evil, bless the boys. And he continues there. Notice this word redeem. Now, don't get caught up by this phrase, the angel, that is being referred to here. The angel is just simply another way of describing God throughout Genesis. It's a way of describing the angel of the Lord or God's presence with him. So what he is saying here is that God has redeemed him from all of the evil that he has experienced. All of the evil that he is guilty of and all of the evil that he has experienced from others done to him. God takes our evil. God takes our pain. God takes the suffering that we have to walk through and he redeems it for Christ. Excuse me, he redeems it through Christ. Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have a redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God redeems us. He restores us. And that is accomplished at the cross. Like Jacob, 
We have been redeemed by God. But unlike Jacob, our redemption is infinitely greater. History shows us that God is at work for us. God is at work for us, his people. He is at work for you. Every single thing that God has done throughout history has been for his glory and for the good of his people, including you. He has revealed himself in his word. He has fulfilled his promises. He has shown himself to be faithful daily and he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. One of the most important things that we can know as Christians is that history, everything that has happened up to this point, shows us that God is faithful. And more specifically, God is faithful to us. God is at work for us. God is on our side. All of history testifies to that truth. And it is that truth that leads us to our second truth. If the first truth looks back at our lives in the past, the second truth looks forward to the uncertainty of the future, to the unknowns of what is facing us. And this is why it's so important for us to remember this, because God has been faithful in the past, and we know that God will be faithful to us in the future. And that's our second truth. No matter what comes our way, God will continue to work for me. God will continue to work for me. You know why Hebrews singles out this moment of Jacob's life as definitive? Why it describes this moment right here as the clearest sign of his faith? Because it is here and in no other place that we see such a radical confidence in God's commitment to his family. The text is very intentional. As it's talking about Jacob, it uses his covenant name. It uses the name Israel. It is a sign of his confidence in relationship with God. He is confident that God is for him and for his family. And the same can be true for us. As we look back at the past, as we look back at what God has done for us, we can have confidence moving forward into the future that God will continue to be with us. It doesn't matter what comes our way in life. It doesn't matter even what comes our way in death. God is with us. God is for us. And God continues to work for us. This faith that we see in Jacob inspires such a confidence that he is over, he's willing to overcome four key obstacles facing him. And I think that are facing us today as well. Let's look at these briefly, just uh, through this passage one, one more time. This confidence that we have, this faith that we have, can allow us to overcome these obstacles just like it allowed Jacob in his life. First one is this. With faith, I can have confidence in the face of my current reality. I can have confidence in the face of my current reality. On, on the surface, Jacob's faith, his confidence here, looks relatively foolish. God has promised him the land of Canaan, and here he is living, flourishing hundreds of miles away in Egypt. From our perspective, we know that it's, a hundred, it's hundreds of years before God fulfills this part of his promise. How is it that he can have this confidence? How is it that he can have this faith? It's because history has shown him that God is trustworthy. 
history has shown him that God is trustworthy. Even though the promises aren't fully fulfilled. Even though his current situation, his current reality may speak different. He's willing to trust God. He's willing to trust that God is God. And to trust him to know what is best. Again, the same can be true for us today. It doesn't matter what your current reality is. If you're faced with insurmountable bills, if you're faced with broken relationships, the brokenness of sin, we can still have confidence that God is for us, that God is with us. Because just like Jacob, we can look at the past and we can see that God is with us and works for his people. With faith, I can have confidence in the face of my current reality. Next obstacle that we see Jacob's faith allows him to overcome is this. With faith, I can have confidence in the face of temptation. I can have confidence in the face of temptation. Look at, at this last verse here. Very interesting last verse in, 20, in 22. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Last verse of the chapter, as he's giving his will and testament, he's adopting his two grandsons. He looks back at his son and says, oh, by the way, I'm about to die. And I'm going to give you this small parcel of land back in Canaan. It's not your brothers. It's only for you. Think of the context here for Joseph. Joseph right now is in Egypt. He's the second most powerful man, not just in Egypt, but most likely in the entire world. He's just a heartbeat away from being the most important and powerful man in the entire world. For Joseph, he owns plenty of land throughout Egypt. He is extremely wealthy. And you might be saying, what on earth does he have need for a small parcel of land in backwater Canaan? He is in the center of the world right now in Egypt. Why on earth would he need, or what use can he find for a parcel of land in Canaan? The fact that Jacob gives him this land, the only land that actually belongs to him at this point, the fact that he gives him this land is a declaration of his faith. It's a declaration that one day his family will leave Egypt. And Jacob will need land for his descendants. Joseph will need land for his descendants because his family will come with them. Jacob is faced with the temptation of Egypt. He could very easily say, you know what, God, we don't need the land. Thank you very much. We're, we're thankful that you're with us, that you're, you've been faithful to us, that we are continuing to grow. But you know what? We got it from here. Egypt is where it's at. My son is a part of the aristocracy of Egypt, and that's where we're going to place all of our hope and all of our trust in. But Jacob gives Joseph land in Canaan as a declaration that his inheritance is not in Egypt, but it is in Canaan. It is not in the hope of Egypt, but it is in a relationship with God. For us, we may also face temptations just like Jacob, just like Joseph. 
it is so much easier for us, so tempting for us to just cancel out part of God's promises, part of God's calls for obedience, and just live the life that we want to live. To remain in Egypt, and yet faith steps forward, even in the face of temptation. This faith, this confidence that he has in God allows him to declare that the riches of Egypt are nothing compared to the riches of God's grace. No matter what temptation faces you, we can have confidence because of our faith, because of what God has done in the past, that he will continue to be with us and we can say no to the temptations of our lives. Third obstacle that our faith allows us to overcome With faith, I can have confidence no matter my social status. We talked about this briefly earlier, that most often it was the older who would receive more inheritance than the younger, and yet Jacob changes that pattern here. And Joseph gets angry with him. He gets angry with his son, and and Jacob, excuse me, Joseph declares, hey, hey, dad, you did this wrong, and Jacob says, no, I didn't. I knew exactly what I was doing. He declares against conventional wisdom that God is going to make the younger mightier than the older. And we we already saw that this begins to come true. He begins to declare and in his he declares his faith in the face of culture, in the face of society and the hierarchy of the day and says, you know what? My faith is greater than what is facing me. The same can be true for us today. Our social status does not matter. God's promises overcome anything and everything that has to do with those. If you're a student, it doesn't matter if you're the most popular person in school, the least popular person in school. God's promises ring true. His faith, your faith in his promises can allow you to overcome those. Adults, for us, our vocations, whether we're in a vocation society, celebrates, uplifts, says is a wonderful gift to society, or if it's one that's mocked, one that's disdained, saw as useless, it does not matter. Our social status does not matter in God's sight. Our faith can overcome We can have confidence in our God who has already overcome. And the fourth one is this. With faith, I can have confidence in the face of death. I can have confidence in the face of death. Verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. How is it that Jacob is able to say this with confidence? It's because he's seen God at work in history. He's seen God at work in his life. He's heard God speak. He's seen God's promises fulfilled. He's experienced God's faithfulness. He's been redeemed by God. And that allows him to face his death with confidence. It's not something we like to talk about very often, but it's important for us to face death as a reality. Unless Christ returns first, each and every one of us is going to face a day just like Jacob, where we will meet death. The question is, how will we face it? Will we face it with the confidence of Jacob? That we will face it with confidence and with faith in the God who holds the keys of life and death. Because that faith, that confidence is available to us because 
of what God has already done for us, because of what God has already revealed to us. And in a way, that's what this Christmas season is all about. You might be saying, well, what on earth are you talking about? Christmas is about birth. It's not about death. Christmas is a gift for this very reason. Let me explain that. Each and every Christmas, we remember a historical reality. It's not just some fun tale that we like to remember. These are actual events that took place thousands of years ago when God took on flesh. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're preparing to celebrate right now. We remember the reality that God came to earth, dwelt among humans for 30 years. We remember that he lived a sinless life, that he was killed in obedience to his father's plan. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead as a sign of his victory over death and over sin. And because he died, we can now live. Because he bore God's wrath, we can escape that wrath and be forgiven. Because he is at his father's side now, we can rest in the work that he accomplished for us. That's ultimately what Christmas is about. That's what this chapter is about. It is, it is about where God is at work for us. In Genesis 48, as we talk about Christmas, it simply reminds us this. Christmas declares God is for us. Christmas declares that God is for us. Christmas is the chapter of God's story where he takes himself and he writes, him into the story, he writes himself into the story in order to save us. Christmas. Jesus coming to earth declares that God is for us. It doesn't matter what comes your way. It doesn't matter what comes your way in life or even if it is in death. Christmas reminds us that God is for us. Just as he was for Jacob in Genesis 48. And so as Christmas Christmas approaches, I think there are two simple things that we can do. First is reflect. Reflect on the Christmas story. Reflect on what God has done for us. Reflect on his faithfulness to you. Reflect on the redemption he has offered to you. Reflect on the words that he has spoken to you in his holy book. Reflect. But also rest. Rest in his promises. Do not fear what is to come. Like Jacob, we can rest in the promises of God that he has for his people. Like Jacob, we can have radical confidence in the love that God has for us because of the meaning of Christmas. As we close, I I just want to do something that's a bit unique. In 1563, church leaders uh, met in Germany. Uh, They began to to meet together. They wanted to list some distinctives of their uh, beliefs and of their faith. They wanted to make sure that they were all on the same page. And so they, they wanted to do this in a way that wasn't just for them. It wasn't just for the people uh, who had advanced degrees. They also wanted to do it for the everyday people. And in the 1560s, uh, most people were illiterate. They couldn't read. And so they wanted to do this in a way that it was easy for everyone to remember the biblical truths that we take for granted oftentimes because we live in a largely literate society. And so they wrote down something called the Heidelberg Catechism. You might have heard of it before. Uh, you might uh, have actually read it before. Now, we're not a traditional church here, um, but, but I love the Heidelberg Catechism. 
This past week, I was reading the Heidelberg Catechism and I actually shared what we're about to say on Facebook because it was so powerful. And I think that it's appropriate as we close to read with confidence the first statement of the Heidelberg Catechism. It is a confession of our faith. It is a confession of, of our confidence, our belief, our trust in what God will do and has already done for us. That no matter what comes our way, whether it is in life or in death, we can have confidence in the God of our salvation. So if you are able, I invite you to stand, and we're going to read this uh, together. The Heidelberg Catechism, I, I mentioned that it was largely designed for an illiterate society. And that's not me saying that we're illiterate. Uh, it is simply uh, designed that way so it can be in question and answer format. And so what I'm going to do, if we can throw that first question up there, I'm going to read this question, and then uh, all of us are going to respond with the answer together. And just, uh, just rest in these words as they, they speak about the confidence that we can have. And what Christ has done for us. So what is your only comfort in life and in death? Please respond with me. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus, that no matter what comes our way, we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, as we look at the end of of Jacob's life and the things that you are teaching him, revealing yourself to him. And today, how you want us to learn from those, I pray that there is one truth that would sink in, and that is that Christmas is for us. Or excuse me, Christmas declares that you are for us. History shows us that you have worked for us. And from there, we can have confidence that you will continue to work for us, that you will continue to be with us, to love us, to walk with us, and to carry us. No matter what is facing us, I pray that we would be able to hold fast to you. That these truths would be the anchors for our souls. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.